This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for September 25th, 2017. Immigration has become one of the most polarizing issues in politics. If you're on the left, you must be for it. If you're on the right, you must be against it. In this podcast, I talk to the son of immigrants to Southern California, who argues the conservative case for immigration. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. On the phone now, I have Alex Narasta. He is an analyst with the Cato Institute, and he previously worked with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He largely focuses on the area of immigration. He's got qualifications in that field from George Mason University and also the London School of Economics. Alex, we know that politics these days is a series of tick boxes that you use to prove which side of the culture war you're on. Uh, you've spent most of your career at conservative think tanks, so I presume that means that you're against uh, all immigration reform, probably against all immigration. Am I right? <laughs> Certainly not. It's the exact opposite. Um, whether I'm working at a conservative or libertarian think tank, I actually take the opposite approach, which is that the United States should liberalize immigration, make it easier to come here lawfully, uh, the current unlawful or illegal immigrants should have a way to legalize and eventually naturalize. And that generally we should move in a more open direction rather than the more closed direction that seems to be favored by many on the right currently. Why is that? So there's a lot of reasons. I think if we're going to focus on a lot of the conservative reasons, uh, the United States has a strong tradition of being open to foreigners, not a uniform tradition by any means, but a very strong one. The first immigration law passed in Congress after the United States got its independence was essentially an open borders bill that just had uh, qualifications um, of how long you had to live here before you can naturalize, and unfortunately some racial qualifications. But that was just to naturalize in order to become a citizen. In terms of being able to move here, to live, to work, um, there, it was absolutely open. It wasn't until the 1870s, 1875 specifically, when you got the first federal laws actually restricting who could come to the United States. Before mm -hmm. then, anybody, you know, criminals, uh, the insane, um, somebody with a tattoo on their forehead that says, I hate America, mm -hmm. uh, could immigrate prior to that. Beginning in 1875, Congress started to gradually restrict immigration up through about um, the 1920s when they largely closed it off and it was closed from about the mid-20s uh, to the late 1960s. And we've seen a sort of gradual opening. So I think we have a long tradition of not only an open immigration policy, but also assimilating and immigrating uh, and integrating immigrants and their descendants into the United States. Uh, it's a very diverse country if you take a look at the ancestry of Americans. So if you divide it up by like Germans, French, English, Scottish, etc. Uh, it's one of the most diverse countries in the world due to the history of immigration. One of the other reasons, um, besides it's the traditional one, is that the free flow of labor, entrepreneurs, of uh, people across borders is a very important part of free markets, uh, of capitalism, and a free enterprise. Um, 
when you study economics, you learn there are four major factors of production. There's capital, land, labor, and entrepreneurship. And immigration or liberalized immigration allows three of those four factors to be more mobile. And we know um, the exception is land. And we know from studying our Adam Smith and Ricardo and the modern economists as well that having an internationally liberal system that allows the factors of production to move across borders is one that maximizes growth and wealth for virtually all people. Uh, okay, um, I think probably it's not never going to be possible to move land internationally. Uh, That's right. We can, That's we, the exception. <laughs> yes. Um, but isn't it possible, Alex, that you're working in a different paradigm to the one where these factors were first understood. Sure, you know, there was no legal barriers to coming to the United States from pretty much anywhere in the world up to the 1870s, but there were barriers and there were physical barriers. It was just actually very physically difficult to get there. Now you can literally go from one side of the globe to the other in a few hours. The cost of that is within the means of literally billions of people, maybe not of the poorest of people, but certainly of, of people who are very poor. It's possible for them to save up and get an airline ticket to go around the world. Isn't it possible that that analysis is just no longer valid? So uh, one thing about, about the history is a lot of people sort of assume that the free immigration period in U.S. history was just during the time of sale. But uh, large portions of that included the time when steamships shortened the transoceanic uh, trip, uh, the transatlantic trip from usually more than a month or months to about a week to two weeks. So the cost of coming to the United States was falling dramatically in the mid to late 19th century when the U.S. still had mostly uh, open borders or open borders um, with the rest of the world during that time yeah, period. Yeah, but once that availability kicked in, then, um, then immigration restrictions were imposed in the U.S. Uh, so it was a few, yeah, it was some time after that. There may have been that. a few years um, of a gap, but it was pretty small. It was, but the first laws were also pretty small in terms of the restrictions. You know, I talk about that 1875 law. It was basically a law that restricted people who were criminals um, or, or prostitutes uh, coming over. The next law was in 1882. That restricted just uh, the Chinese mm -hmm. um, who were coming over. And then you this had is the infamous Chinese suppression law, yeah? Yeah, yeah, the Chinese Exclusion Act. And yes. then you had a handful of laws saying you couldn't bring over um, indentured servants in the 1880s. And then basically not much. Until 1906, there was an agreement, sort of an off-the-books agreement with Japan, where we said where the Japanese wouldn't issue any visas to leave and we wouldn't accept any to enter. And it wasn't really until 1917 where they passed an act that said you, you had to be, um, you couldn't be African or Asian and you had to be literate to enter. And the real big restrictions were in 1921 they began, sort of a, a first time quota on the Eastern, uh, on all people outside the Western Hemisphere. But what's interesting is there is not a numerical quota put in place on Canadians or Mexicans or people from the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. So while I think the technological, the idea of the technological movement um, uh, can explain part of it, a lot of other ideological movements, I think, um, or a lot of ideological movements and other movements are, are a much better explanation, uh, namely the theory that was popular of eugenics. Mm -hmm. So immigrants started to come from different parts of the world rather than Northwestern Europe. They started to come from Southern Europe. 
um, from East Asia, from Eastern Europe, from the Middle East. Uh, that started to worry some people, so they decided to close it off for those reasons. Um, to sort of growing idea of a uh, labor movement uh, in the United States and in other places was uh, anti immigrant at the time because they saw them as competitors. Okay, so I, I want to, Alex, Alex I want to focus on one of those things because you mentioned the potential economic hardship on people who are already in the United States, uh, mm -hmm. particularly the reduction in the price of labor from uh, having having a large pool of unskilled immigrants coming into the country. But I've talked on this podcast, for example, uh, to Vox Day, who's I think would identify himself as part of the alt-right and uh, I don't know if he would use the words white nationalist, but he, he, he certainly uh, has a view that the good immigration to the US was all European and mostly Protestant, and that the culture or the, the cultures brought by other immigrants are necessarily problematic. It is true that essentially the United States was built as a Protestant European country, albeit on a different continent, isn't it? So the people who fought the revolution uh, were overwhelmingly, of course, you know, European origin and, and Protestant. Um, but it's also important to note that George Washington was very, I mean, very open to Catholics. He had Catholic celebrations in his army, which were very radical at that time. Protestants yeah, yeah but ca I, you know, like Catholics it. were just about white enough, but that was really the limit. Well, to an extent. I mean, since the 1830s, basically in every year since the 1830s, Catholics were the largest group of immigrants in the United States. And John Jay, who was one of the founding fathers, advocated for a wall of brass to keep Catholics out. It was argued that Catholics were bringing an anti-Republican, pro-monarchist, pro-Pope-ish ideology to the United States. The foundation of the nativist movement in the 1840s and 1850s, where we got the phrase know nothing from, was largely anti-Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, and that is the basis of that. So if, if you're thinking, like if this fellow from a box day is opposed or thinks that it was the Protestant Northern, Northwestern Europeans, who were the ones who built America, then basically he's condemning virtually the, the vast majority of immigrants who have entered the United States since about 1835. Yeah, I, I think you may be correct in that. He, that's not something he would deny, but that's, that's, uh, we'll leave that up yeah. to him. But however different, let's say, Southern European, Italian, uh, Spanish, or perhaps Irish Catholics coming to the US, however that may have influenced the culture of the US, you, you're, I think your family background is from Iran. You'd have to admit that the cultural values that come from the Islamic world are radically different to anything that would be acceptable to most Americans uh, today. Uh, they are different. The thing is, the people who choose to come here from those countries... Um, either before they come or once they get here. And we have extensive polling data on this from Pew uh, Research Center mm -hmm. of American Muslims. Um, it radically converges with Americans very rapidly, such that they look like they have American social and cultural opinions that are about equal to what Americans had in the, in the mid-2000s, so about 2005 or so. They're very similar to those opinions mm -hmm. on things like gay marriage, on things like... Uh, whether you can force religion on violence, on all these types of uh, issues. So that's either because they assimilate or because those who choose to come here are different than those who are left behind. But I think you can argue in this world today, 
the cultural differences in most parts of the world in the United States are narrower than they were in the 19th century between the United States and most areas of Europe. So just to give the Irish for an example, um, the typical Irish immigrant in the 18th, late 1840s during the potato blight um, was totally illiterate. They were half of them spoke Gaelic; they didn't even speak English. Mm-hmm. The um, they worked uh, as tenant farmers on landlord estates. They did not work in industry. They didn't know what the hours of the day were in terms of reading clocks. They didn't use money typically. They were um, sort of in this quasi-feudal, terrible. Uh, system they were stuck in. Hold up, hold up, hold up for a second there, Alex. Alex, Are you saying that was the population they came from or that was the actual people who arrived? I don't think that's correct. I think that during the potato blight in the 1840s in Ireland, it was people who were quite well off and quite well educated could afford to get a ticket to go to the United States. Well, one of the big things that changed with the blight was that a large number of people who were very poor uh, were the ones who were able to come here. A lot of uh, the work by Roger Daniels about um, the Irish coming to the United States is about this sort of in detail, a nation by design. Zolberg writes a lot about this. I mean, one of the great things that was jarring to Americans was that you had about more than 45% of the Irish immigrants to America spoke Gaelic. They mm-hmm. didn't speak English. And Gaelic was not a sign of being, um, you know, a well-off Irish immigrant. But I, but I would argue that if you're one of these very poor Irish immigrants in the 1840s coming to the United States to New York City where it's industrializing, the vast cultural and economic differences there are much bigger than they are for most of the uh, immigrants or potential immigrants on the world today coming to the United States. Okay, that may be true in the sense that the people who are arriving in the U.S., you're selecting for the people who are already closest culturally to being American. And equally, once they get here, they then are, I don't want to use the word pressure, but they are under, uh, they are influenced to become even more like Americans. But that's now when the level of immigration from Islamic countries to the United States is pretty low. But if you were to do what you're suggesting, which is essentially throw open the borders, isn't it entirely plausible that you could have essentially a situation that the American Indians suffered at the hands of the uh, British and German settlers who first arrived in America and that they would create an entirely culturally independent colony, let's say, that is not influenced by the current population. Yeah, I think that's almost, um, I think that's impossible without a war. Uh, in the United States, there are about 11 different regional cultures, and a lot of um, sociologists like David Hackett Fisher or and historians like Fisher and others have noticed this over time, that these cultures are pretty reflective of the founding values of the people who went in there. It's called the Doctrine of First Effective Settlement. So mm-hmm. basically, the first people in an area set a culture, and they basically continue over time, and we've had waves of immigrants into these different regional cultures that have largely assimilated into them. Some changes, of course, but largely assimilated. It changes, though, when a group comes in and either overwhelms by an incredible degree the locals all of a sudden, 
So if you had like a billion people move to California, yeah, or you know, 100 million or 200 million in the course of a very rapid period of time, yeah, you could see an overwhelming. Or in the case of the American Indians, when you have a slaughter. So if you have an area where it's depopulated by 90 to 95% in a short period of time due to warfare, smallpox, and other area reasons, and then the locals are driven off, then yeah, you could see, of course, the, that culture is gone because all the people are gone. But 10 million, 20 million, 30 million immigrants moving into New York City, though, doesn't have that effect. It's not a replacement. It's not like one immigrant come in means that one American moves out. I, I understand what you're saying, and I, and I understand the theory of the, the, you know, the first effective culture, that the people who get there first are essentially the people who everybody else assimilates into. But again, you seem to be presuming that we're in the previous world, and somebody now can arrive from any country in the world and have complete cultural immersion in their home country, because they can, you know, plug in uh, their TV into the internet and get uh, the evening TV news from their home country. They can be immersed in the internet of their home country, and uh, indeed, often perhaps even only speak the language of that country. Hasn't technology changed that game? I don't think it has. Uh, we don't see much evidence of that in terms of the rates of assimilation of current immigrant groups in the United States, in terms of learning English uh, compared to the past, in terms of economic assimilation. One of the best ways to get ahead in the United States, because we don't speak other languages, is uh, learning uh, English, for mm -hmm. instance. And it's very hard to come here and not speak English and to make um, enough money to justify that. You can if you speak Spanish in some parts of some cities, Miami specifically, but even there the returns to speaking English are uh, very high. Basically, it's in the self-interest. The people who decide to immigrate, no matter what the regime is, are the ones, unless they're forced out and refugees maybe, are um, pretty interested in making money in the places where they go. That's why they leave in the first place, most of them. And to choose to be separate from the local culture to such a degree that you don't even speak the language significantly hampers your economic ability to work. So even if they don't want to, even if they say they don't want to, what we notice over time is those types of phrases, those types of things just don't really matter. Um, immigrants today are assimilating um, at about the same rate as they did in the early, 19th, uh, early 20th century when we have data to be able to measure it. And the availability of uh, telephones, cheap plane tickets, and uh, Internet communications hasn't seemed to hamper that. In fact, by having a global Internet where English is the lingua franca, mm -hmm. uh, not entirely, of course, but it's the common medium, and where American culture dominates, makes it so that these immigrants are more American, more attuned to American cultural norms um, than they uh, would be in the past. Okay, one final thing, Alex. Um, however good this is for the United States, and you can argue that economically and perhaps culturally as well, isn't it possible that allowing such uh, a high level of emigration from countries that are perhaps already in difficulty, isn't it possible that you'll just denude some countries of their younger, more economically active and more industrious populations and that would uh, have a very serious effect on those countries? Uh, so it might have a serious effect on governments that have very bad policies and lock in productive people and tax them and abuse them horribly, but I don't think that that's really relevant. I think what's relevant is the people and the individuals um, 
who move. No, but for, for, for example, for example, in the last days of Castro, of, of Fidel Castro, um, many of those uh, boat people emergencies were actually engineered by the Cuban government, and they basically gave the nod to all of the people who they thought were troublemakers to say, we'll allow you to uh, get on a boat and head for Florida. It suited autocratic, undemocratic governments to have the younger and particularly the more industrious uh, and uh, more uh, younger people, the people who had initiative, it suited um, them to get rid of them. Well, the, in the case of the Mariel Boatlift, which is what you're referring to, the main um, thing that they did that it was so um, that was so uh, uh, wrong from the American perspective was they emptied out mental asylums yep. uh, and jails and forced those people on. But Cuba has strict emigration with an E, emigration restrictions, uh, to try to lock in a lot of the talented people because earlier in the early 60s. Um, a lot of yeah, that's, that's Alex. Cuban that's ex- that's exactly my that's exactly my point. An absolute autocracy like Cuba tries very hard to lock in their talented people and prevent them from leaving. But most poorer countries aren't able to do that. They don't have the total police state that would allow them to do that. Isn't it and I think the case? That's a good thing. It, it, um, it, well, it's a good thing for those people individually. But if they have a United States that will accept uh, pretty much anybody who shows up. There are some poor countries that are going to be totally denuded of their talented population. Isn't that true? Uh, some. I mean, I could see the, the country of Haiti empty out and move to the United States, but the only way that Haitians have ever gotten out of poverty is by emigrating. Yep. And I think that that is much better than saying that we're going to lock you into your poor, destructive country um, because of the hope that somehow um, by doing so you'll be able uh, to develop. Uh, the thing is, like a lot of these immigrant groups who go to the United States, they, a lot of them don't stay permanently. A lot of people do go back. They go back with different skills and they go back with money and they send money back to their home countries. So we've seen this in Mexico, rural populations that were poor who sent people to the United States. They sent back money and capital, which actually helped development in poor Mexican towns quite a bit. So it could be uh, the opposite, where you see more development in the third world because a lot of the you know, industrious people come to the United States and they send home what these poor countries don't have, which is in some cases know-how, but in a lot of cases, capital. Alex Norasta of the Cato Institute, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Never miss a show. Follow at Challenging O on Twitter and like Challenging Opinions on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast for September 25th, 2017. I have links to the things I was discussing with Alex on the website in the show notes. And if you know someone else who I should interview or other topics I should be covering, I'd really be interested to hear your feedback. If you like the podcast, there's one thing that you could do that would really help other people find it. Go on iTunes, give the podcast a rating and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at Challenging O. You can also follow Alex Narasta at Alex Narasta, and there's that spelling in the show notes as well. But most importantly, subscribe to the show. It's free. You can use Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any other podcast app or software. There's links and an RSS feed all on the website. 
And if you don't use a podcast app or software, you can subscribe by email. Just enter your email address on the Changing Opinions website. Each time a new show goes online, you'll get a simple email with a link to listen and no spam at all, I promise. You can find all of that or get in touch with me at www.changingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's October 2nd, I'll be talking to the financial journalist Bill Tatro about those damn millennials. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. The assistant producer is Liam McLaughlin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.